Hello, you are listening to the Hypnothesis Podcast. This is your host, Elliot Weisbluth, bringing you in for another episode. So in this episode, I talk to my friend Andy Nagy. Andy Nagy is a graduate student at the University of Georgia. He's studying freshwater ecology, seeing as the southeastern United States is one of the most biologically diverse places in the world, as far as freshwater ecology goes. He has a lot of interesting stuff to say about the subject. We talked about conservation, we talked about new environmental policies, why it's interesting to study these things, as well as the field of freshwater ecology and ecology in general. Now, Andy Nagy is a legend among legends in the fromping community. So towards the end of the discussion, we go over how to properly fromp a beer. And if you don't know what that is, I'd recommend tuning in to find out, because chances are you're going to find yourself hanging around a bunch of friends, a couple guys, a couple girls, sitting around drinking a few beers, and one of them is going to look at you and say, hey, they're going to say, hey, prompt that beer, and you're not going to know what to do. Well, don't worry about that, because we got you covered. We're going to tell you everything you need to know about fromping beers in this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Still Nobody, because I don't have any sponsors. Please sponsor me. And with that being said, here is the Hypnothesis Podcast. Really, time is only experienced by the events which occur within it. And in denying their humanity, we betray our own. No, I won't yield. One of the aspects of God came to the earth, mind you. And look at what's out there. How long have you been in Georgia for? Uh, I moved down here August 2nd. So oh. sitting a little, little over three weeks now. Did you bring your turtles? Oh, yeah, dude. I got my boys. Yeah. <laughs> How'd they do in the car? Uh, they did fine in the car. So there was a, a near disaster about two weeks ago. What? Um, so, like, obviously when I'm moving the tank, I just drain most of the water out and I take all the rocks out so it's as light as possible. Mm-hmm. And I set it up in my house and I put the rocks back in. And um, one of the rocks was positioned in such a way that the turtle, a turtle fell off the back of the rock and got stuck underneath the rock in between the glass and the rock and <laughs> and it almost drowned it couldn't move it couldn't get its head above the water oh. and i like found it and i pulled it out and it could it, i mean it couldn't couldn't move i just like had to sit it in this tupperware container on top of the rock just like overnight you luckily just, you just dried your turtle out and it and it, it worked yeah no i mean he was like He's like barely moving. Like it couldn't, it did, it couldn't move its body, but it would like uh, open its eyes and blink. Um, I was, wow. I thought it was, I thought it was toast. Um, <laughs> and then turns out, turns out, <laughs> even if they come back from drowning, turtles mm-hmm. are really susceptible after these experiences to pneumonia. So what? I'm sitting there for like the next week, like staring at my turtle. I'm like, you breathing all right, yeah. buddy? But like, how do you check? How do you know until it's just dead? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's that's insane, though. Uh, so he didn't get pneumonia. He's still swimming around. Yeah, he's he's doing dandy, you know. Oh, raviolis, man. raviolis in it. Yeah, what you got? Ravioli, manicotti, conchelli, and tortellini. 
<laughs> was was that right? Was Manicotti one of them? Yeah. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, did you bring your uh what was it? It was not it wasn't an axolotl, but it was like the same same family, right? No, it was it was an ax I had an axolotl. Oh yeah. Did you bring that one yeah. too? No, I only have one tank now. I got rid of all my fish. Mm, gotcha. Back to the back to the river or to a friend? Uh to a friend. Nice. Nice. Well, glad to hear you settled in. You got some friends. Do you have any roommates? No, I'm living alone. But you got the turtles. I'm living... Yeah, I got the turtles. Yeah, I mean, I've just been playing Elder Scrolls Online. So, you know, that's oh. kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So, the most, like, uh, central topic that we were intending to talk about was freshwater ecosystems and whatnot. Oh, yeah. But I also... Yeah, yeah. Actually, let's let's go ahead and do that. What what are you studying, Andy? Oh man! All right. So I am. My program is a uh, conservation, ecology, and sustainable development program. Um, so I, in particular, am concerned with freshwater ecosystems, specifically streams, big boy, and the rivers and creeks. Right. Uh, like so wait. of all of all scales. So like tiny little headwater trickles down to mm. big big old rivers. Um, okay. I mean because it's all it's all this like it's this gradient of interconnectivity and Yeah, yeah. Now is is there anybody studying streams that specifies their size? Uh yeah, there are people who are focused in uh interactions in headwater streams or a big thing right now, we'll get into this with some of the future questions, but a big thing right now is a lot of the really small streams mm -hmm. um, are becoming what what's called intermittent. Um, as yeah. we're using more and more water and things are getting drier and drier, there are periods of the year where they're, they might no longer be flowing. Um, right. And there are a lot of people right now who are just studying like what exactly is that doing to the communities that live in those streams? The communities of humans? No, 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 sorry. When I, when I speak of communities, uh, it means the all the different plants and animals that are living in a particular ecosystem. Right. So, so studying these ecosystems is that something you do um, like very generally? Like you look at the microbes in there, you look at the plants and the animals, and like everything that's going on, the balance, so, if you will. So, it, I mean, again, it's another one of those things where because it's this biological science that ranges in like a hierarchy of complexity like people right. are down there studying algal microbes there are people who are just studying something to do with those mm -hmm. and then there are people who are studying entire drainage basins like somebody might be trying to quantify like nitrogen and phosphorus nutrient input into the mississippi river and just looking at the entire watershed so yeah. where I am right now is, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I feel you. Like, also, I we're we're probably in the same spots of like just starting out grad school, and maybe right. you had a more solid idea of where you were heading. But I know personally that like I I'm like all across the board with stuff that I think is cool, and it's like hard to settle, you know. Yeah, I mean, I have I have specific focuses that I'm gonna look at. Uh, I don't have a particular project like right. organized right now, but uh, 
I do have a particular set of interests right now. Uh, yeah. So, Elliot, you know, but uh, a lot of the listeners might not know. Um, of I am a fish boy. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we, we talk about these. these fish boy. We talk about freshwater ecology in this in this big scale about all the different processes going on in rivers, and I'm interested in that. But I'm specifically interested in and how those things are actually driving patterns in fish biodiversity. Biodiversity um, specifically as a, as a metric. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons that biodiversity is important, but one of the systems that I'm, I'm interested in right now and what most of my lab's work is, it's in the, uh, the Mobile Basin. So that's a big river that drains near where the Mississippi goes in, but it's, mm-hmm. it drains in, uh, in Alabama in mobile that's where it goes down to yeah um and a lot of people don't realize this but the southeastern united states is one of the global hotspots for aquatic biodiversity um mm-hmm. i mean just the number of plants and animals that inhabit these rivers is astounding um and in particular the rivers the conasaga and the etowah rivers uh, they're a little bit north of Atlanta. Um, but they're two of the least impacted rivers. They're, they're closest to like what mm. we would call a natural state. Um, right. Uh, and they're consequently, they're refuges for all these fish that used to maybe be more widespread, but uh, things like urbanization and, and mm-hmm. pollution have extirpated them from other parts of this mobile system. And now now there are there are spots on these two rivers, the Conasauga and Etowah rivers, that that they're like strongholds for for fish biodiversity. Right. Um, so concerning right now is that we're seeing a declining pattern as you get lower down in these rivers. They're they're degrading, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of ideas, but nobody's really sure what exactly it is. Um, so what I'm going to be doing is trying to come up with some kind of testable hypotheses for this. And right. So, so, you, so you're getting at the cause of the decline in biodiversity. Yes. I, I was just, I was just thinking about this, uh, recently. How, how would you describe, uh, the importance of biodiversity? Like what, why does it matter that there's different kinds of there, fish yeah that's that's a that's a good question and i think that it's an important thing for for conservationists to portray to the public because i think there's there's this stigma surrounding a lot of people and environmental issues where it's like oh you're just a tree hugger like like mm-hmm. that that stupid fish doesn't actually do anything it's holding up my two million dollar like apartment complex like <laughs> yeah like what do you mean I can't bulldoze this stream? Like who cares about that fish? Mm-hmm. So you need, you need to be clear about why biodiversity is important. And um, I think one thing, a lot of people don't like to hear this, but I think there is a kind of inherent value in, in living organisms. Um, yeah. And it's stated all the time, but once a species goes extinct, that's it. There's no, there's no bringing it back. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. That's the end of the line. And right now, extinction rates are just 
so much higher than they have been historically outside of those major extinction periods that we see yeah. in the geologic record. So there's that side of things. But then even if you don't necessarily agree with the fact that like a species is that important, um, inherently, biodiversity is important to the integrity of an entire ecosystem. So mm-hmm. these things have evolved over millions of years and these communities that inhabit these ecosystems all have a specific role that they're playing in the streams. Right. So there are some fish that are eating tiny little insects and there are some fish eating those fish and there are some fish swimming around eating uh, detritus, and dead things off the ground. They all, they all play yeah. a role. And when you, when you move... When you remove an organism, a species, from this ecosystem, it can have pretty dramatic changes to the entire thing. It can impact an ecosystem's, you know, entire food webs, and it might change the way that the the river is able to to handle nutrient inputs. So mm-hmm. lots of agriculture is putting in nutrients and um if you get rid of, say, like aquatic vegetation, like you see, you know, plants growing out of the river, if you're getting, if for whatever reason those are disappearing, then uh, river's no longer able to get rid of those nutrients. And you see things like harmful algal blooms, like nobody wants to go swim in a river that's got cyanobacteria and toxins in it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was just going to oh, say, yeah, and, you know, drinking water. I think <laughs> the vast majority <laughs> of, of like public drinking water in the U.S. comes from streams. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting point about the inherent value of species as a product of evolution. Like to if you if you agree with evolution, which you should and I imagine that ninety nine and a half percent of our listeners do. Um, then you should be amazed anytime you see any sort of new species to know that that evolved in some niche as a product of billions of years of natural selection to come to a head to have this genetic code and make something unique and beautiful. Um, I guess this is what a more practical dissenter would say is like the tree hugger mentality. But I'd say to those people like, have a little bit of humanity, honestly. Like, look at these things and appreciate them for what they are. Sure. But you're right. I'll go. I'll go ahead and you know plug plug my Twitter and Instagram. Maybe we'll uh maybe oh, we'll yeah. we'll include that in the description. But yes, uh, sir. I've been doing a lot of freshwater snorkeling this summer and just taking pictures and videos of a lot of like just absolutely stunningly beautiful fish that a lot of people mm. don't realize even exist. Dude, I saw some of those pictures, man. They they are beautiful. They're they're great pics. Snorkeling in streams, huh? Yes. Oh yeah, snorkeling in in the rivers. <laughs> yeah. Do 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 you ever do that around people who are looking at you with Oh a, yeah, with a side you get some weird looks. <laughs> uh, I snorkeled I snorkeled in some streams uh in just like suburban Dayton, just like yeah. <laughs> really tiny creeks like running behind a car apartment complexes and you know people give you weird looks but there's there's cool stuff in there yeah yeah there totally is um no, props to you honestly for for having having the guts to do it because that sounds like something that would be awesome but something i would just never even 
consider doing right maybe maybe yeah. have to check out like the local cricks of berkeley you know oh maybe absolutely there. um you know it's not unheard of though like you get weird looks right. doing it in suburbs but uh there's actually a spot in the conasauga river in the very upper end where i'm going to be working mm-hmm. um there's a spot that's actually been labeled by uh the u.s forest service it's it's a known spot it's called the snorkel mm. hole um, oh. <laughs> yeah literally known as a snorkel hole and the they do hole. they do outreach programs where they invite like you know clubs and public groups up there and everyone gets on a snorkel and you know looks at all these just amazing amazing fish and i think it's mm. a really good way to kind of communicate the importance yeah yeah i, I remember <laughs> that was something i was thinking did, wait did you watch tiger king by yeah. chance oh, yeah God. <laughs> i know like um questionable bringing up tiger king in an ethics discussion but one of the things that uh joe exotic was saying was that people would come see the tigers and leave with this intrinsic appreciation for them and go out with a desire to conserve the places that they come from and that was sure. that was a bit ironic maybe coming from the capitalist joe exotic but the uh you know the sentiment is true but yeah so so you mentioned um biodiversity it's it's inherent right it's it's, it matters because it's inherent but it also matters practically and i'm wondering if if we're facing the issue of people who would like to bulldoze you know a stream head-on and they're not going to listen to that inherent argument like what do you think the best thing that you could say to those people would be in order to change their mind about the notion of preservation like from a from a purely practical standpoint right so there there's actually an entire field devoted to this question um environmental or ecological economics Hmm. um where people actually try to assign monetary value to uh to ecosystem services like drinking water and uh Hmm pollution pollutant mitigation um and it's it's difficult for me because i don't think there needs to be this like i mm-hmm. you know i'm sure we'll get there at some point but i am a, a fairly anti-capitalist in general so yeah. i don't think that that needs to be any kind of like value-based decision that we need to make but i also recognize that that's not the way that people work right now so i think you know coming up with these these you know dollar sign values is important for people like developers to see um the issue is that a lot of the mode of operation for these people is like short-term profits even if even if you're able to Mm. put some money value about how important maintaining this drinking water source for the next 200 years is. Um, I mean, at at the end of the day, that's going to require some kind of like government agency regulation to consider Mm -hmm. because a developer who's just trying to put up an apartment complex probably doesn't care that much. Right. Um, So unless there's regulations that make them, you know, I don't know, pay, pay a tax for impacting water quality, things like that, it's it's not going to actually have any, any teeth. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Because even if you had a practical monetary argument, whoever is going, is like... They're, not, they're not footing the bill. That's the mm. issue. 
What do you mean? The, de- the developer, you can you can say, oh, bouldering losing that stream is gonna decrease water quality and make a uh, uh, whatever water treatment facility have to work twenty three percent harder, which increases their annual cost by you know I don't know a million million dollars. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, apartment developer, if they're not if they're not incurring that cost, if they're not the ones who are directly experiencing mm. that lost in value then then it's it's hard to even use that to motivate you right so there there is this aspect of regulation um by the government like you could if you can convince the the government to regulate then you can reduce the amount of capitalist environment destroying projects that are going on but it seems to me to have to to stop this extremely powerful wave of environmental destruction the appeal that we need to make is that inherent appeal which maybe needs to be instilled in people a little bit earlier in their education you know like we had earth day and you know shit like that when we were kids but overall the the message um provided by culture by education by pretty much everyone is to fight for yourself and do whatever you need to make that money. So what, do, do you think that education, like early childhood education even, or outreach programs is, is really the way to slow down this, this environmental disaster? I think, I think it's, a, it's a component of it. There needs to be broader education about these kinds of issues. But, I mean, regardless of the amount of education you're putting towards the youth there needs to be needs to be a systematic shift i mean literally globally in in our economic system to ever kind of prevent or change course to what we're now on as far as environmental disasters right it's Um, a it's an existential risk and we found out recently that people aren't quite as good at dealing with existential risk as we might have previously thought um considering the panicked response to the pandemic i'm sure that when the environmental disaster comes to a head things will devolve into certain chaos it would be in our best interest to deal with it now so i've got a question about the relationship between public opinion and science it's like you're coming from an academic background studying these things like what how do you how do you bridge the gap between like the insights that you create um and the public's opinion on environmental issues sure uh that can definitely be a bit tricky i mean we've talked about outreach education events mm-hmm. um i volunteered at ohio state we had an open house at the museum of biological diversity and just invite the public in to just see all this incredibly right. cool nature that, that you know they've never seen before i think you reach a lot of people that way um but there's a lot of people who you know a lot of people living out in the country that maybe don't come to that kind of event or don't their school system might not have the resources to like you know, host mm-hmm. these kinds of like in-person educational events. Um, so I think I think it ultimately comes down to, I mean, pushing for pushing for this this social and government shift to allocate more resources to education. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of these environmental issues are contingent on just like 
you know, you know, bringing up the quality mm-hmm. of people's education and well-being because it's, yeah. it's it's hard to it's hard to motivate a person who's living in poverty to to give a shit about a stream if mm. if they can't afford totally. trash service because they can hardly Ooh. afford to eat they're going to be more likely to 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 dump their dump their trash in the river and like i'm not saying that's like some kind of excuse or absolves them of moral responsibility but i think mm-hmm. a big part of that is often ignored by by people pushing for these conservation issues or just yeah. just not considered Right. No, that that's that's a really good point actually. Um I guess it it demonstrates that we have we have some societal issues that we need to address promptly so that we can get on to these existential threat issues like that of the climate crisis and things things of that nature. Right. I mean, um, you see you see a lot of arguments where people are saying, "Oh, this impending climate crisis is uh is due in large part to overpopulation from largely underdeveloped areas. And right. it's almost it's almost this like like Malthusian like xenophobic argument where they're they're mm. trying to place blame on these on these others in the world at least yeah, from, from an American that. perspective. Um but the reality of it is the issue isn't there's something wrong with this culture and we need to like force them to have less babies it's because like these these systems of education access to healthcare, access to you know adequate adequate resources for family planning these countries Mm -hmm. don't have it and you need you need to put that in place you need to bring that up before you can try to address issues like population yeah, people are quick to judge character before considering the environment, the contributing factors that formed that character. Um, and you're right, that is an intrinsically xenophobic argument. Um, I had I read this interesting um, like neuroscience study recently about about racism and people's people's implicit bias how their how their brain biologically responds to photos of people from another race and regardless of whether you're racist or not if you're shown a photo of somebody from another race the first thing that activates is the amygdala the center of fear and aggression it's kind of like the this the mechanics of um like uh getting ready to run or fight start to spark up that's that's that happens like before you can even tell someone what the race of the person that you're seeing is you you don't consciously know that it just it goes into your brain and that that happens and if you're not racist then your prefrontal cortex the mechanisms within it will overpower that that amygdala and and that hate that that disgust will be subdued for what you what you've learned as a member of modern society that you know everybody's basically the same you probably have humanistic ideas but if you're racist that never happens and that and that reaction is exploding and it expands into just this fury fury of hatred and i think that that initial response right there that 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 hatred is what drives people to to judge character before environment and what we need is a little bit more prefrontal cortex activation on average from 
our American <laughs> population and the world as a whole. So I've got I've got an important question for you, Andy. Um, what is your favorite fish? Oh, all right. So, uh, all right. I don't know if it's my favorite fish because it's not the prettiest. It's not like right. the rarest or anything. But I would say the most significant fish for me is uh, the grass pickerel. I actually plan on getting it tattooed on my arm. Really? Um, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Can you show me like? Like yeah. right on my forearm. Nice. Ah, that's going to be dope. I want to see it. Yeah. So the significance of the grass pickerel is that uh, if you're listening and you're, you're a fisherman, you probably know of northern pike and muskie. They're pretty commonly sought after sport fish. Um, and growing up, I was, you know, big sport fisherman, like getting out there and catching bass mm-hmm. and love chasing down northern pike. Um, and when I finally started getting involved in aquatic ecology and working in the fish division, it came to my attention that there is a fish that looks just like this northern pike. It's, it's you know, very similar looking, but they only get about six inches long. Um, mm, just little guys. Yeah, just little guys. And I, you know, kept some for pets as a while and I, I fish for them. And it's just, it, the fish kind of represents this this transition of me from just being like, like a casual observer slash sports fisherman mm. to someone who just like, like as I, as I just started to really understand just the vast biodiversity that fish have, mm. there's just, there are just so many fish that it just would never have considered to have existed. And yeah. Wow. That's, that's a really great answer actually. Um, it's fascinating. I'd I'd love to check one of these little little guys out. Are you gonna get it? The uh, other the other component of the grass pickerel that makes it important to me is that I spent two years trying to catch one on hook and line. I spent <laughs> did you get it? Hun- I spent hundreds of hours like driving around the state of Ohio, wading out in these like swampy areas, just getting muddy, covered in mosquito bites driving back, kayaking, just ridiculous amounts of effort. Could never catch one. I finally did this summer. Whoa, um, you did? Yeah, Where? I made Where? it I made it happen. Uh how how to happen? What you got to you got to bring me through like the sequence of events that is, led up to this. This is the most like classic cliché one more cast story. Yeah. So <laughs> Uh, you know, I, the the state non-game fish biologist, Brian Zimmerman, recently I worked on the book, the new Fishes of Ohio guidebook with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave me coordinates to a this wetland, the spring-fed wetland near Dayton, um, up near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, so I go to this wetland and I'm like wading around the muck and all this crap, fishing three hours. It's middle of summer, so it's like 90 degrees and just hot, tired. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, fuck this, I'm going home. Yeah. Um, so I get out of the wetland, and this wetland drains into this little stream by uh, the bridge that I parked at. And I was just casting in the stream because, like, I would expect the grass pickerel to be in a wetland, not the stream. But I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, let me just, like, catch some creek chub or sunfish in here just for shits and giggles on my way out. I yeah. make a cast underneath the bridge right before I get out, and bam, there it is. <laughs> I I almost crapped myself. Yeah. I almost cried. <laughs> In fact, oh I definitely goodness. did. I definitely did get a few tears. 
Oh, it's so good. Wow. Yeah. So, so at the end of the day, there's a thing I talked about, about it melding my past as a, a fisherman and now my, my goals as a biologist. Um, but it also just represents like tenacity in a seemingly just ridiculously stupid goal. Uh, like I spent so much time mm -hmm. banging my head, just fruitless efforts and just kept at it long enough that it happened. Dude, that is that is an epic adventure, truly. Hundreds of hours uh, driving around Ohio just to get this six-inch fish. Wow. Well, congratulations. Um, I'm proud of you. And uh, I'm sure that catching that, that fish might be like a symbolic representation of your successes as in your career as a biologist as well, you know? Something hopefully like that. Less, hopefully less failure in my career. <laughs> uh, everyone keeps saying that you have to fail an absolute shit ton to be even moderately successful. So I'm sure after your experience with that tenacity that you won't have any issues persevering through some failure. Don't get discouraged, though. I'm expecting this podcast to take off in exactly one decade after a thousand episodes have been released. Per perfect. Yep. <laughs> People will be digging... People will be digging through the the old days, the, oh, the roots. They're like, dude, listen to this classic episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know if I told you anything about it. The podcast is called Hypnothesis. Um, and this is like the third or fourth episode about. So you're, you're an early founder. Um, Ooh, sweet. Big time. Oh, yeah. So there's, there's another important topic. Um, related to aquatics that I wanted to get into. And that was the proper methodology for fromping beers. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So fromping a beer. For those of you who don't know, um, what you do is you, you take your, your beer of choice and shake it up a bunch, and then you start savagely banging it against your forehead. Um, and the goal is to puncture the can, crack the beer, in such a way that you can then, you know, drink it. You, you open up the tab and basically shotgun it through whatever hole you created with your forehead. Right. Um, so there's there's a couple considerations you need to do before you start fromping a beer. Uh, the first <laughs> first and foremost, there's the safety issue. Uh, you definitely want to be fromping an aluminum can, not a glass bottle. Uh, <laughs> You want to make sure that you're hitting it on the crest of your forehead, not not like front right above your eyebrows, because you're just gonna hurt yourself. You need, you need the hard part of the bone, dude. I, um, I, let me let me just interject and and like um, approve of that advice because I absolutely fucked my brain by smashing it against the flat part of my forehead. Yeah, many yeah, times. You don't want to be doing that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Second thing: beer selection. Uh, <laughs> you don't you don't want those tall, slim cans. <laughs> the the surface area to volume ratio is so important for just getting that that internal pressure that you you can't be screwing around with like a fucking white claw, you know? <laughs> nah, you think right. it's like a Miller above something? Yeah, PBR. Absolutely. Yeah, so like you know, light beer. That's it's standard. Nobody's gonna judge you. You frop a light beer, you're fine. You start mm -hmm. fropping natty daddies and double IPAs. You're hard. <laughs> yeah. 
If you're uh, if you're propping like microbrew sours from Urban Artifact, you probably just have too much money. Yeah, no, you you want to prompt something that is high in alcohol, low in cost, high in volume, low in surface area. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. Right, and and when you when you make this crack, right? I feel like a lot of people who prompt beers have the issue of just like smashing the beer so significantly that it all collapses in their hand. They don't even have the opportunity to drink it. How can you get like a, a close concerted leakage point that you can slurp that beer through? Right. So there's there's this, you know, fine line you got to walk because if you if you're not hitting it hard enough against your head, you're going to have to hit it against your head a bunch. And it's going to end up hurting. <laughs> Uh, so you want to get enough, uh, you know, enough enough oomph on it that you get this crack, uh, but you don't want it, you know, bursting like. Right. Yeah. Uh, so then you can't drink it. So one of the issues that you might have is that you might crack it, and there might just be this tiniest little stream. So you can either keep hitting it against your head, and then you got beer all over your forehead, or what is also recommended and often I do is you got you got to just bite into the beer a little bit. You know? Oh, so get, so you get bite your it. teeth on there. Yeah, <laughs> expand the puncture. All right. All right, before we set our listeners off, like you know, ripping their lips up, fromping beers. How do you? How do you? How do you bite the can? Right. Like, is it? Is it? Do you hold it sideways and bite it around the round part, or do you get your bottom teeth under? The like bottom of the can. I try to I try to put my my front teeth on on the little hole that I made. Okay, front and teeth. I'm on holding the, hole. the can sideways. Mm-hmm. But okay, also, yeah. like you don't want to you don't want to be just like savagely biting into it. It's more just like a press on the tooth. Okay, get, so get that widened up. You don't want to get too excited, but that's going to yeah. be hard once once you have the fromping completed. Once you, once you're smashing your forehead on it, it's going to be a big temptation. To just rip into that thing like a line in the Serengeti. Absolutely. I mean, the other the other factor you gotta you gotta realize here is that if you're at the point where you're fromping beers, you're already drunk as hell. <laughs> you gotta be careful. Yeah, yeah. Nobody nobody goes from zero to fromp. There's a gradual gradual increase there. Maybe a couple light shotguns beforehand. Now, as to the legality of using your thumb to crack that hole, is that I I kind of feel like it might be a no go as far as like official fromping standards go what do you think i'm not gonna i'm not gonna claim to be the authority i'm not i'm not the fromp council i'm mm-hmm. not sitting here on the chair of fromp uh right. i would say probably don't use your thumb seems soft but mm-hmm. i could understand if you're concerned about the health of your teeth and gums and lips you might not right. bite so yeah. i certainly wouldn't judge anybody okay Okay, yeah. If you if you feel like I mean maybe if you're an intro fromper, um, the thumb could be the, the better way to do it. Um, but you know everyone has to find their own path on this beautiful journey that we call life. So if you if you think thumbing it or teething it is better, just do you. Fromping's about individual expression, and don't forget that as you're savagely bashing a beer against your forehead. All right. So you mind if I take a pee real quick? Oh yeah, totally. Take your take your time. Hell yeah. Alrighty, I'm back in business. Right. Welcome back. That was that was a quick one. I do what I can. Hmm. You're a champ. Okay, so so I'm gonna pose a hypothetical situation to you, and 
if, if you could just walk me through like what you do in this situation, that would, that would be sweet. So you are roughly 400 feet on top of a large tower, right? You climbed up there, yeah. did a little bit of, yeah. did a little bit of shred, little lead. You made it to the sure. top, wrote your name in the guidebook or the uh, log book or whatever. And you're like looking around. It's pretty nice. It's getting dark. So you figure you should come down. So you hook up your anchor and start to repel. And when you get to the end of your rope, you realize that you missed a stop point. That the next set of anchors is about 10 to 15 feet below where you're hanging. And you should have stopped probably 50 feet above where you are in order to hook yourself into a different set of anchors. So now you're hanging there. You're 300 feet in the air. What do you, what do, you do? Uh, so first step, a uh, couple st- strings of expletives. Right, you, you, yeah. you, have, you have to you cut you, you cuss a bit. Uh, <laughs> you say, well, and then, shit. <laughs> and then you got to look up, you gotta look you up at your partners because, you, you know, if you're in this situation, chances are you were the first person to repel because, you know, right. somebody else makes this mistake. Yeah. You're probably not going to go down there and do it after them. No. Uh, so you're staring up at your partners and you get a shout out. Hey, I'm 20 feet above this ledge. I didn't make it to the anchors. And they're going to shout back something along the lines of, oh, this other party is telling us there's an intermediate set of anchors over here. (laughs) You good? And you're going to shout back, sure. Because, you know, what else else are you going to do? You say, oh, we're going to repel with this other party. Uh, Good luck. What? (laughs) Did that happen? So then... (laughs) I think I think I think I may have a I may have established that I had came up or found a way to get down before they before they left. Uh, okay. Um All right. So you know, third thing, you you communicate with your party, you you cussed a bunch and and now you're sitting there and third thing is you got to make sure you have another rope with you. If you right. don't have another rope with you, you just got to fucking jug up the rope and, you know, try again. You know, oh, go man. Try a different route. That's you're, a pain in the ass. Are you, on a, are you on a creaky right now or an ATC? I'm on an ACC. How are you um, going to jug up this rope with an ATC if you have to? You, you know, you got you to gotta take a couple slings because you probably got a couple slings around. Yeah, I um, imagine so. And then you got you to gotta create two friction knots and use them like leg uh, slings and you just... Oh you're shit! Just, you're just sliding those up one after another, just shuffling back up the rope. Um, that's a real right. pain in the ass. Uh, mm-hmm. So you don't want to be doing that. So now you're coming up. Okay, is there any way that I can avoid doing that and keep going down? So you got another rope. So you're like, well, I got another rope. The issue mm-hmm. is when you're on, you're on belay. You can't just like you know take the rope off and attach it to the rope that you're repelling on. Right, um, just doesn't make sense. Because you, you, well, and also you can't. You, you would need to pass your belay device over over these knots. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and you, you you don't have bolts to just like go straight into the wall. So you're like, all right, well, I'm close enough to this crack system, and I got this big rack of cams. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's throw some cams in the wall and just build an anchor. It'll be fine. Yeah. So you you kind of pendulum over to this crack system. And you, you throw you throw you throw three or four little half-ass cams in there, and uh, that's and your anchor. You, yeah, then that's your anchor. So you're like, all right, fine and dandy. Um, and then you anchor into that, and then 
you go ahead and take the take the rope off. You're you're no longer you're no longer on the rope you're pelled down on. Um, so now mm-hmm. you're like, okay, how did I how do I get to this ledge 15 feet below me from this anchor by myself? So what you do is you take the rope that you have, you know, because luckily luckily for you, you're just carrying an extra rope. I don't know right. why climbers don't do that more often. Just like halfway up Twinkie at the red, you should, you should probably have another rope on. Exactly. Um, so you go ahead and you, you go in direct. You just tie yourself directly to your anchor, but mm-hmm. you need to leave enough rope out so that you can get down to the ledge because you don't have anyone to belay you, you know. You just mm-hmm. got to leave 30 feet of slack on the rope. Um, so right. you tie yourself into the, and then, then you got to just say, well, I'm going to take myself off this anchor now. And if I fall, I'm going to be falling, you know, 30 feet yeah. right on, right <laughs> onto the anchor. No, no <laughs> dynamic belay, but, just but you got four sketchy ass calves, <laughs> but you got three, you got three or four cans in. So like, you know, mm-hmm. if each Heck one yeah. of them is 80% good, you're probably fine. Right. Um, and then you got to down climb. And then you're like, oh, that's not bad. So you go ahead and you down climb. You get into the to the anchor. And then you're like, ah, oh, shit. I forgot. Now I need to figure out a way to get my cams back. So then you got to right. take the other end of the rope. And you got to go in direct to that anchor. Go in direct to the bolts. And once again, leave yourself a bunch of slack. And then you got to climb up 20 or 30 feet. Get your cams out. And then you got to mm-hmm. down climb again. Right. Uh, and you got to really, really hope you don't blow it getting your cams out. Because then... You're falling twice the length of the rope, fall factor two, directly over a ledge. Yeah, and then uh, you're basically just... That, that's not a soft catch. Yeah, that's not a soft no, catch. Because nobody's catching you. Good news, though. You don't do that. Right. You get down. Because you're Your friend's you're waiting there. Your friend's waiting there with Girl Scout cookies. You start pounding Thin Mints for the hike back down. Mm-hmm. And then you uh, you get a bottle of gin, a pie, and a pint of ice cream, and you, you go to town. Yeah, man. Uh, well, thank you because I, I know there's definitely a couple listeners that are going to find themselves in that situation. And uh, if they ever do, they'll know exactly what to do. Uh, I think the important thing to highlight here is the gin, pie, and ice cream. Uh, if you're eating anything else, then you probably just you probably just won't make it to the end of that adventure. So be sure to uh, go to your local grocery store, maybe to the discount section and see see what they have to offer. Let me let me put climbing nutrition out there because I'm sure you have an audience that, you know, probably gets out to the crag a few times a year. Yeah. Uh, you see a lot of climbers fucking around with things like berries and avocados. They're bringing, you know, vegetables and fruits and like, you know. Yeah, whole I don't foods, know, quinoa. Like that. You're bringing quinoa to the crag. Mm-mm. I get, you know, healthy foods are great and all if you're just sitting yeah. around your couch. But you're out at the crag you need easily accessible energy. You need right. to be eating. You need to be eating Twinkies. You need to be eating donuts. <laughs> maybe a protein shake if you're feeling wild. But just like, yeah, you're not you're not sending on on broccoli, dude. It's just <laughs> not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, a personal favorite of mine is um, Snickers. Or the Snickers ice cream bars, but melted in the package, so it just kind of like goops out once you open it at the crag. Assuming you're doing some some hot summer climbing. I think I think it was you that told me about this, but you take a like a Ziploc container or Tupperware and you break up ramen and instant mashed potatoes and just like cold soak it at the crag and you just like 
Take a couple I was so stoked on that when I learned about it. It was it was it was originally a Jake Rish recipe. I was like, gonna say it sounds like Jake. Yeah, man. And I I I was like I was like, oh, there's so many calories. This is so fucking easy. Like, <laughs> you need two instant things, and then you don't have to heat it up. It's just it. But like, get through half a bag of instant mashed potato, cold ramen, mush, and tell me that that's sustainable nutrition. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like good on paper man it's good on paper but it it really kind of falls through in um application i will say the salt the salt hits different in the desert it's good (laughs) yeah you're out you're out sweating your ass off in the dry desert heat all day and you you want that you want that you just want to eat the ramen packets yeah you want to fuck with the noodles just like oh yeah i mean drink the seasoning packet Pure spices. That's all. That's all you need for a balanced, healthy, nutritional, energetic diet. Um, yeah. Anyway, you should check out our other podcast. It's about nutrition, um, where we go through everything you need from carbs to carnivorous items to ramen packets for your uh, nutritional sending desires. Um, this is just a little preview of that. Well. Anyway, Andy, we, we've been at it for about an hour, so I think it's about time to wrap it up. Thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. It's been Absolutely. a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm always happy to spread awareness and inspire people to, you know, get out, enjoy, be a steward to our rivers. Um, mm. So, you know, thanks for giving me a platform. Oh, show, man. Absolutely. Hello, Hypnothesis listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving a review and a rating. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, or me, you're connecting with me. I control the accounts. Send me DMs. Send me jokes, memes, pics, family photos, anything you want. That's at hypnothesis underscore pod on Twitter and Instagram. Hope you're having a good one. Cheers.